My Buddhist philosophy is this. Buddha was, the metaphorical at least, Buddha was brought up rich. His father was a king. Well, his father thought, I'll make him happy if I just keep giving him more. And he lived in a bubble protected from life. Three times he was able to sneak outside the bubble. The first trip, what did he learn? People get old. Number two, you get sick. And number three, you die. Old, sick, die. Buddha goes, well, that sucks. <laughs> That's not good at all, this old, sick, die thing. And you know what he learned is be happy with more stuff doesn't work. He said, there's nine years still, old, sick, and die. Then Buddha went out into the woods and starved himself, and he tried to be happy with less. You know what he learned? That didn't work either. One night he finally realized, you can never be happy with more. You can never be happy with less. There's only one thing you can ever be happy with, what you have. There's only one time you can ever be happy. Now, there's only one place you can ever be happy. Here. Where is Nirvana? <laughs> Listen to this podcast right now. Here it is. It's not someplace else. It's not out there. It's all in here. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. This is one of my master locksmith episodes where you get to hear from a world-leading expert who will help you to find the keys to discover your own unlock moment of remarkable clarity. And what a master we have for you today. Who is Dr. Marshall Goldsmith? Simply put, he's the world's number one executive coach. A member of the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame, Harvard Business Review named him the world's number one leadership thinker. He's written or edited 43 books, which have sold over two and a half million copies and been translated into 32 languages. In Amazon's 100 best leadership and success books ever written, he has two of them, including my favorite leadership lesson of all, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. A former professor of management practice at the Dartmouth Tuck School of Business in New Hampshire, Marshall has worked with over 200 major CEOs and their management teams. On social media, he has 1.4 million followers on LinkedIn and over 3 million views on YouTube. In summary, you're going to want to listen very carefully to everything he has to say. Marshall's new book, The Earned Life, came out just recently. Subtitled Lose Regret, Choose Fulfillment, it offers practical advice aimed at helping us shed the obstacles that prevent us from creating our own fulfilling lives. With this book as your guide, readers can close the gap between what they plan to achieve and what they actually get done, even in a world full of inescapable unfairness and curveballs, and live an earned life 
that is too fulfilling to dwell on the what-ifs. When I'm working with my coaching clients, regret of what might have been is such a common thread that causes people to get stuck. We're about to hear how you can let go and move forward. Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you so much. So start us out with, what do you mean by this concept of an earned life? How do you define it? We are living an earned life when the choices, risks, and effort we make in each moment align with an overarching purpose in our lives, regardless of the eventual outcome. And that's the kind of non-Western part of that definition, regardless of the eventual outcome. And what does that mean? Where, do, where does that come from? Because that, that end part is the bit that I find most interesting, because we're always chasing outcomes in life. We're always told that we, we're supposed to achieve certain outcomes. And you're saying, but regardless of that. Yes, I think one, one of the great Western diseases is I'll be happy when. When I get the money status, BMW condominium, everything is going to be okay when. And one of the things that I talk a lot about in the book is never place your identity as a human being on results. It's a fool's game for a couple of reasons. One is you don't control the results. The results are not strictly, I didn't make up COVID, you didn't make up COVID. The results are influenced by thousands of things we don't control. And number two, what happens after you achieve the results? Well, how much satisfaction does that actually bring anyway? If you look at one of the nice people who endorsed the book is, Dr. is Albert Berla. And Albert Berla was CEO of Pfizer. So I called Albert a few months ago. I said, Albert, how was your year last year? He said, oh, pretty good year. I came up with this vaccine for COVID. That was nice. And then we, uh, you know, CEO of the year and company employee engagements all time high. And right in the company's all time high, stock price high. So I said, what's your problem? I said, I have a huge problem. Next year. Next year. Well, the reality is if Albert's value as a human being is he has to achieve more than last year, he can pack it in. It's not going to happen. Michael Phelps won 25 Olympic gold medals. What do you think about doing after winning number 25? Killing himself. Why? That was his value as a human being. Well, really important, never place your value as a human being based on results. It's not bad to achieve results. That's a good thing. On the other hand, that doesn't make you a good or bad person, and it doesn't. you shouldn't confuse that with happiness. One of the people in our group, and this book was inspired by COVID, uh, over COVID period, my friend Mark Thompson and I spent 600 hours with 60 very distinguished people in groups of 10. We would rotate these groups every weekend, and they talked about their lives. And one of the people in the group was Safi Bacall. And Safi, a brilliant guy, a PhD in physics from Stanford. He wrote a book called Loon Shots. He started four companies. He's worth tens of millions of dollars. And he um, consulted the presidents and on and on and on. Well, Safi said he learned something from Curtis Martin, who was a football star. And what he learned is happiness and achievement are independent variables. And he used to believe that Happiness was a dependent variable based upon achievement. And if I achieve, I will be happy. He said, I finally learned that happiness and achievement are indeed independent variables. And if you think about it from Safi's perspective, his previous beliefs were ridiculous. What? 
He already has a PhD in physics from Stanford. He's already written a New York Times bestselling book. He's already made tens of millions of dollars, successfully four startups, and consulted the president. Now, if that's not enough achievement to make you happy, exactly how much do you have to have? I mean, he's already a 99.99 in terms of achievement. Does he really believe getting up to a 99.999 is going to make it's going to make any difference? So, yeah, as I said, it's a very Western thing that's been hammered into our head. I, I work with a few people in high levels in sports. And when you're up at that very, very high level, to beat the person that's placed sixth or 10th or 20th doesn't feel like achievement at all if you're ranked number one, number two, or number three, because to you, it's easy. And so, and I think I see this, that wherever you are in your career, it's exactly as you described. You, you can achieve what to the outsider looks like extreme success, but for you, it's just where you are. Yeah. And, and you know, I think very, very important in my book, I talk about our aspirations, our higher purpose. Why am I here? Why am I doing all this stuff? Why am I working all the time? That's our aspiration. Number two is our ambitions, which relate to achievement. And then finally, we have our actions, which are day-to-day-to-day activity. And to me, assuming that you're healthy, I don't talk about that in the book, assuming that you're healthy, you have good relationships with people you love, and you have a middle class or upper middle class, a middle class income even, then what do you need to be happy in life? Well, there's three things. You need to align that higher purpose with what you are achieving and enjoy the process of life. If you do that, you just won the game of life. That's about it. And that is really what I talk a lot about in the book. Now, the people listening to us right now and the people I coach, our ancestors were lost in the action phase. They didn't have a choice. They were poor. Our ancestors lived from day to day to day to day to day. They were, you know, just striving to stay alive was hard enough, right? They didn't have time to think about all this lofty stuff. They were stuck in the action phase. Most humans today are stuck in the action phase. They play video games. They go from day-to-day work. They do what they're told. They just kind of stay alive. Some people then are lost in the, uh, on that aspiration phase. They're lost in their heads. Lofty ideas. They don't really achieve much. They may not enjoy the process of life, but they've got lots of lofty visions. The people listening to us right now and the people I coach tend to be addicted to achievement. Who buys my books? Almost nobody buys books. I mean, I've done studies. 95% of people buy my books are college graduates. 60% have graduate degrees. How many people listen to this podcast? They're not a normal group of people. They're achievers. They wouldn't be listening to the podcast if they weren't achievers, right? Well, achievers get addicted to achievement. And the problem with getting addicted to achievement is two things. One, you can forget, why am I doing this? Exactly why am I working all this time to achieve all this stuff? And then number two, you can forget to enjoy life. And when you think back to early in your career, were you one of those people early in your career where you felt you were chasing achievement? Was there a moment in your own career where you figured this thing out, that that chasing achievement wasn't the be-all and end-all, do you think? Well, again, I'm a Buddhist. Very unusual for a person of the West. Now, when I say I'm a Buddhist, and the book, this is basically a Buddhist philosophy book in many ways. When I say I'm a Buddhist, it doesn't tell you much. Buddhists said, only do what I teach if it works for you. 
there are so many types of Buddhism, and they're so different. And I don't claim mine is better or worse, but I'll, I'll just briefly describe my type of Buddhism. I'm not a religious Buddhist. I'm a philosophical Buddhist. My Buddhist philosophy is, is Buddha was, the metaphorical, at least, Buddha was brought a bridge. His father was a king. Well, his father thought, I'll make him happy if I just keep giving him more. And he lived in a bubble protected from life. Three times he was able to sneak outside the bubble. The first trip, what did he learn? People get old. Number two, you get sick. And number three, you die. Old, sick, die. Buddha goes, well, that sucks. <laughs> That's not good at all, this old, sick, die thing. And you know what he learned is be happy with more stuff doesn't work. He said, there's nine years still, old, sick, and die. Then Buddha went out into the woods and starved himself, and he tried to be happy with less. You know what he learned? That didn't work either. One night he finally realized, you can never be happy with more. You can never be happy with less. There's only one thing you can ever be happy with, what you have. There's only one time you can ever be happy. Now, there's only one place you can ever be happy. Here. Where is Nirvana? Listening to a web, <laughs> listening to this podcast right now, here it is. It's not someplace else. It's not out there. It's all in here. Very not Western. The Western ethos is, I will be happy when. And by the way, the great Western art form, you may have heard one of these before. The great Western art form sounds like this. It's a drama. You may have heard this drama. It sounds like there is a person. person is sad. So sad. They spend money. They buy a product and they become happy. This is called a commercial. I don't know if you've ever heard one of those before, but millions of times in our lives, this message is hammered to our head. Happiness is out there, not happiness is in here. And you always had that belief or, or did you figure that out along the way? <laughs> I was brought up in Valley Station, Kentucky. Uh, we didn't even have outdoor. Uh, we, we had an outdoor uh, outhouse the first four years I was in school. So uh, the Buddhist population in Valley Station, Kentucky was reasonably small. And I think it's interesting because I look back at my own career and I think of those moments when I felt that society or expectation around me was, was setting goals or setting achievements or setting what success was defined as. Yeah. And, I, and I do think that I progressively let go of more of that, let go of the feeling of needing to please other people. And I think definitely through, through coaching, you get to let go a lot of that because the role that you play becomes no longer the expert or the leader. It's, 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 it's a partner in, in a journey, which I find so fascinating. When, when you're helping people to let go of something that they regret in the past, and we're not talking little regrets here, we're talking like major life regrets. What do you do? What kind of journey do people go on to start to let go of some of those things that hold them back? Rather than answer that in a more theoretical sense, let's do a little practice. Okay? So everybody listening, take a deep breath. A good Buddhist philosophy is every time I take a breath, it is a new me. A new me. Everything that happened before this second in your life was done by an infinite set of people. They were called the previous me's. All those previous you's. 
Think about all those previous views. Infinite set of people. Think of all the gifts they've given you that's listening to me right now. Think about all the nice things they did. Think about how hard they tried. And that silence, I think, is really powerful because that's a silence that people don't normally find in their own lives. And it's what I like about podcasting as opposed to a radio show where you can sit in that silence. And I appreciate what you're doing to help people listening to this podcast to have that experience. What's the difference between happiness and fulfillment? Well, again, I don't like to get into semantic debates, so I'm just going to define what some of these terms mean to me. Uh, Paul Hurston, my old teacher, said, never get into a semantic argument. When you use a definition, just say, this is a definition that I am using. And don't feel the need to say it's better or worse than someone else's definition. So you save a lot of, you save a lot of time in life when you don't have semantic argument. So for me, let me define happiness, meaning, and then connect it to higher purpose. Happiness, when I talk about happiness, I mean enjoying the process of life. You enjoy the process of life. It's joy in the process of what you're doing, not the outcomes. Meaning is, meaning is the outcomes of what I'm doing are important to me. And then back to fulfillment, to the degree that you do have some sense of higher aspiration or something that's important to you. You are achieving something that is relevant to that, and you enjoy the process, that is fulfillment. And the fulfillment there is a higher aspiration. It's a bigger thing. It's a bigger thing than, than just being happy in the moment. It's something deeper. That's right. That's right. And by the way, my daughter and I have studied this. My daughter, Kelly, uh, she's very smart. She has a PhD from Yale and is a professor and chairman of the marketing department here at Vanderbilt. And here's what we found out about satisfaction with life. To the degree that you simultaneously spend time doing A, you're trying to achieve A, something that you feel the outcome is important to you, and B, you enjoy the process of doing it, your satisfaction with life, either at work or home, is very high. If you just try to achieve that short-term gratification, without longer-term meaning, then you're just playing bad golf with old people at the country club or playing video games or whatever. You're just lost. On the other hand, if all you do is focus on the doing meaningful stuff, but it doesn't bring joy, you're a victim or a martyr in life. So the key is, simultaneously, the stuff you achieve makes you happy and is meaningful to you. Now, one part of the book I love is the marshmallow part. The marshmallow part uh, talks about research that was done in Stanford, the marshmallow study, famous marshmallow study. So in the research, you give this kid a marshmallow. And you say, hey, kid, if you eat one marshmallow, you get one. Uh, but if you wait, two for you. Well, allegedly, they did this longitudinal research and shows the kids that ate one marshmallow all become you know, hopeless drug addicts. 
and the kids that waited for two all got PhDs from Stanford, something along those lines. But the, the point of the research is very clear. Delayed gratification is good. Delayed gratification is good. 95% of all self-help books are focused on one thing. Here's how to delay gratification. Here's how to be more disciplined. Here's how to work harder. Here's how to run more. Here's how to go on a better diet. Delayed gratification is good. What the study didn't do, though, is they didn't take the kid with two marshmallows and said, hey, kid, wait. Wait a little bit, kid. Three. Just wait some more after you get three, four, five, ten, twenty, a thousand. And where does the story end? An old man sitting in a room waiting to die, surrounded by uneaten marshmallows. Sometimes you got to eat the marshmallow. And the story I love is Jack Welch, a famous former CEO of GE. He had a triple bypass surgery and almost died. So my friend is his friend. He talked to him about it. He said, what did you learn about life, Jack, when you almost died? You know what he said? Why am I drinking the damn cheap wine every night? <laughs> Jack Wells has this incredible wine collection, right? And has a whole wine cellar filled with this great wine. And he's drinking cheap wine at night. Why? He is waiting for the wine in his wine cellar to appreciate in value. You know what he said? This is insane. I'm Jack Welch. I'm worth hundreds of millions of dollars. How much difference is wine appreciation going to make in his net worth? I can tell you, none. He's sitting there waiting for the stupid wine to appreciate, and he almost died. You know, he said, one commitment, no more cheap wine for me. <laughs> and this is, this is what I talk about with the unlock moment. This, the moment when he figured that out was the near-death experience, was maybe there isn't time. And, and he has to change that. I, I talked to somebody on my podcast who used to work for me, actually, um, she's called Haley Thomas. And I didn't know this story really about her. I knew a little bit of it when she was working. Um, and she said, when my husband was 40, he was diagnosed with stage three bowel cancer. And we had a choice to put everything on hold, young children, um, and go through the treatment process. But actually what we did was we figured out that maybe we don't have time. And so what we want to do is start up that business that we'd always wanted to do, which was an e-commerce fashion retailer. And she said it was the worst time to start up a business in our house, you know, when, when going through cancer treatment. But it was what we decided to do. And five years on, he's in remission and he's, you know, he's doing really well. But it was that same example. It was the, at a time when instead of, going, there's always going to be time, and next year will be a better time. She said, well, maybe we don't have time. And it blew me away because because that moment was pretty close to the time we were working together. And I never knew, I never saw. Um, and, and that's always stayed with me, that, that story that she tells. Um, and it's so from the heart. But if you say to people, just figure out you know, that, that moment of clarity, people can't find it often without circumstances around them, the environment being right for them to find that clarity. And that's like we were saying with Jack Welch, you know, a health episode in his case being that trigger for, for a realization. But it, and it's not, you know, it's, it could be all sorts of different things. I think you're an excellent case study of what we're talking about. I mean, you have chosen a very non-traditional path and you still are, in, a, in essence, choosing a very non-traditional path. I'm sure you weren't hammered to go to medical school to be a coach. No, no. Taking a detours along the road of life. And 
at some level, you said, you're not doing it because of social status or money or whatever. You're doing it because you feel it's the most fulfilling life you can lead, correct or incorrect. It's exactly right. But I think I was talking to your friend of mine, Dr. Mark Goulston, a few months ago, he came on the podcast and he said to me, what is the thread that goes through your life and career? And I said, well, when I look back now, I see it as making a difference to people in different ways, you know, whether trained to be a doctor or being a coach or other things that I've done. But I, I didn't have that as a thread going forward. I didn't see that as a purpose to pursue. In each moment, you know, it really resonate with what you said. In each moment, when faced with a fork in the road, I decided which one I wanted to take. And I, th and I think that the one that felt the right thing turned out to be the one that followed this kind of mission, but not in a very strategic way, not in a very explicit way. And, and, and sometimes to a point of books that try to tell you how you should live your life, you know, eat my breakfast and, I, and you two will become a millionaire kind of books, I, I, I think of them. Um, they don't work for that reason because life doesn't quite work like that. Um, and you, you, can't, you, you can't predict the future in that kind of way. And I saw in, in, in the beginning of your book, and you talked about where you were when you wrote this book. You, you were in a one-bedroom flat somewhere in, in COVID. Yes. Now, I was on the way to California, so it wasn't... <laughs> it was a nice one-bedroom flat. <laughs> but what was that moment when you decided, I want to take this idea that I have and commit it to a book? Uh, I think it was decided during the process. And also, you have to realize, I did not write this book. It says Marshall Goldsmith and Mark Ryder. Mark Ryder is my agent and co-writer. He writes the books. I have the ideas. So we collectively came up with this book concept. He is an amazing guy. I mean, he's also my agent. I'll just put it in context. Before I met him, the biggest advance I got for a book was $20,000. After I met him, I got 550, 650, 1 million, and 1.2 million. So he's an agent, right? He was, speaking of Jack Welch, he was also Jack Welch's book agent. He's a very, very good, and he's a great writer. And he and I really put this together. And I'm so proud of this book, by the way, because now I can say this without bragging. This book is phenomenally well-written. And I can say it without bragging because I didn't write it. He wrote the book and he put his soul into this book because he was part of all these 60 people in the dialogues. So he and I did this together. So he deserves a lot of credit for this book. This book, of all the books I've done, this one gets the best. It's the most critically acclaimed book. It's already been listed as Amazon as one of the best books of the year. So it's really got great. And it's already been nominated to be nominated for the FT Award for the best business book of the year. So it's got great critical feedback. And what makes it different from the books you've written or been involved with before? This book, I think, is much more about philosophy. It's much more about life. Uh, the books I've written before are all a little bit different. The first book, the most famous book, is What Got You Here, Won't You There, which, again, that's... That keeps going on and on forever. That, that book is still popular. We had $150,000 royalty from that book last year, 15 years after the book came out. That, that thing is amazing. It just keeps going. Well, that book is about problems with successful leaders and how to change behavior. Then I wrote a book called Mojo, and that's it, getting this positive spirit toward life and when it goes up and when it goes down. I wrote a book called Triggers, which is really about the environment. 
And then this book, The Earned Life, is basically Buddhist philosophy, and it's about how to recreate yourself. It's, it's about constant reincarnation, in a sense. One of the most important concepts in the book is called the Every Breath Paradigm, which is based on the Buddhist principle of impermanence. Permanence is a myth. And we all like to believe that, you know, everything is going to be okay when, and we will get to this place. And after we get to this place, everything is going to be fine for eternity. That's the Western ethos. And Buddhism is not into that. So you start over every day. There's always, there's one book that always has the same ending. And they lived happily ever after. Now that book is called a fairy tale. That's not life. Life isn't this place where you get to and live happily ever after. Life is a place where you wake up in the morning and start over every day. And more than ever in the pandemic, it threw so many people into this place of being more uncertain about the future than they have ever been before, more aware of, you know, the, the uncertainty and more aware of, you know, their health, more aware of the people around them and family than ever before. And people have come out with this desire to find meaning in a way that wasn't there in that same extent pre, pre-pandemic. So what are, you, what are you seeing in people that you're working with, people you're talking to now, as we're starting to come out of the pandemic in this search for, for meaning? Well, to begin with, I totally agree with you because you know more about this than me. You're a medical doctor. One thing people start dealing with the pandemic more frequently is something called death. And we start thinking about death, that really gets you thinking, well, uh, what matters here? I'm going to die anyway, so let's just, you know, let's make the best of this show. What really matters in life? And so that has been a huge thing. The timing on this book was very good. Because the timing in this post-pandemic timing, it's a timing when people are more hungry to think, more hungry to think about life. I mean, This is not an easy read book. It's a very dense book. It's got a lot in it. It requires a lot of thought. And uh, I think the timing has been good because the book, typical book like this probably wouldn't sell. It wouldn't sell in the past, but it involves work. I mean, what sells is, let's see, what sells? The One Minute Manager, The Four Hour Work Week, uh, or my favorite book, The Secret. Do you know that book, The Secret? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm most ridiculous things ever written. I can't even believe that. It sold 7 million copies. If I envision it, it will happen. I mean, how ridiculous is that? If I envision it, it will happen. Yeah, right. And every story in that book was true, by the way. They interviewed these people and they did envision things. They did happen. Like Mary envisioned being a movie star, and she is. That's true. They didn't also interview the thousand waitresses in Hollywood who also envisioned to be movie stars. And Jimmy dreamed of winning the basketball game, and he did. They didn't interview the people that lost. And, and Joe had cancer, and he eventually went away, and it did. Well, they didn't interview all the dead people. So <laughs> I have a degree in math. From a math point of view, it's called the survivor bias, right? Let's, people like to read that because they don't have to earn anything. There's a shortcut, and once they do that, then they're, they're going to experience nirvana forever, just, just like that. Well, the book is different. It says that's not the way it works. Every time we take a breath, we're starting over. We're starting over, and you don't get to this place. You start over. And the other thing in the book I I think is very important is vicarious living. 
One of the biggest problems people have today with especially social media is vicarious living. I mean, people have spent probably close to a billion hours watching something about the Kardashians. I mean, why? And I, I was talking about this with my son, Brian. I said, people waste hours playing video games. That, that's not real. It's, a, it's, it's some machine thing. He said, you think that's bad? People spend hundreds of millions of hours watching other people play video games. Do you know who PewDiePie is? I've heard of him, but he's not, on, he's not on my YouTube list. Millions and millions of hours have been spent watching this sarcastic Swedish guy play video games. That's living somebody. It's not even living somebody else's life. It's watching somebody else live somebody else's life. <laughs> it's so disconnected from reality. And so part of it I talk about is you got you to live a great life. Live your own life. Don't live somebody else's life. It's your life. And then the second part of vicarious living that we never think about is when we live in the past. So what happens is the former National Football League players, for example, disasters, disaster. I mean, alcoholic, drug addict, a, a suicidal, a bankrupt, divorced. I mean, it is ugly. It is ugly. What happens is they live in the past. They try to relive that glory. Well, you know. That drunk guy next to me in a bar is not the kid that won Super Bowl three. It's a different person. It's a different person. And it's important to realize can't live in the past and have a good life. The past is done. By the way, it wasn't you back to the concept of it's a new me. That kid in the past was great. Nice kid. Wasn't you. You're not that kid. So people are searching for meaning and leaders of organizations are seeing all their employees starting to come back hybrid, working back into the office, searching for meaning, not finding it and leaving in, in droves. And that's, that's our great resignation. So when you're talking to leaders who are seeing waves of people, often their best people, starting to go, this isn't working for me. I want to do something else. I want to go somewhere else. How, how can leaders build, how can leaders create a culture that makes people feel that they can find more meaning in, in the work they're doing? Adam, have you met Gary Ridge yet? No, no, not yet. He's got to be on your show. Gary Ridge. You will love this guy. Gary Ridge was the CEO for uh, 14, 15 years of a company called WD40. Now, they make lubricant. Jim Downing is the CEO of an organization called St. Jude's Children's Hospital. They cure cancer in kids. WD-40 has higher scores in terms of people experiencing meaning than St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Now think about that. There's no way you're going to stretch making a lubricant as important as curing cancer in kids. Yet they experience meaning every day, higher scores on meaning. Why? They make what they're doing meaningful. They're not waiting for meaning to be given to them. They are creating meaning in what they do every day. There's one flight attendant that's positive, motivated, upbeat, enthusiastic, one's negative, bitter, angry, and cynical. They're on the same plane, same uniform, same employee engagement program. What's the difference? One is creating meaning. The other is not. So I think really important 
Number one, as a manager, create meaning. Hubert Jolie wrote a great book. Now, Hubert was CL Best Buy, also one of my clients. He wrote a book called The Heart of Business, a wonderful book. And in this book, he talks about having a coach. He talks about me. And he talks also, though, about creating purpose and meaning in people's lives. And this is Best Buy. They're selling electronic stuff, right? Well, you know that industry. It's a tough industry. He did a spectacular job of turning that company around. And he gets up in front of everybody. When he goes there, my name is Robert Jolie. I have a coach. I get feedback. I need help. Please help me. And he asks everyone in the company to do the same thing. We all need help. Help me. So anyway, those are some good examples of people and focused on meaning. The last thing I wanted to, to touch on is this concept that you come to in the book you describe as a habit of earning. What do you mean by finding a habit of earning? Well, I think it is very important to the degree humanly possible to establish daily discipline. Now, I've had someone call me on the phone virtually every day for 25 years to help me. People ask me, well, do you have a coach? Do you have someone help you? Oh, yeah, I, I need lots of help. I've had someone call me on the phone almost daily for 25 years. Why? One of the things I teach is called the daily question process. It takes three minutes a day, costs nothing, help you get better at anything. Some of your listeners are skeptical. Three minutes a day, costs nothing, help you get better at anything. Sounds ridiculous, too good to be true. Half the people who start doing this quit in two weeks. How does it work? Get out a spreadsheet, write down a column, things that are important in your life, friends, family, health, workers, whatever it is for you, write it down. Every question has to be answered with a yes or no or number. Yes is a one, no is a zero, or some number, like how many push-ups did I do? A number. You record those scores every day. At the end of the week, you get a report card. I'm going to warn your listeners in advance, should they try this, that report card's not going to be as beautiful as corporate values plaque as he stuck up on the wall. I've been doing this for 25 years. You know, one thing you've left out of my glowing introductions is that uh, I have another gift you failed to mention. I have the ability to screw something up every day. And I'm just so impressed with my daily skill at screwing something up. Problem is, process is you get to look at it every day. It's not that pretty. It's not that beautiful. All this talk, you know, blah, blah, blah. We all, this, we all talk this great game about how wonderful we are and our beliefs and crap. Yeah, you do this every day. It's humbling. It is, by the way, it is hard to do. I, why do I have somebody help, help me every day? You know what? Uh, I was ranked number one coach and leadership thinker in the world. Why do I have someone call me every day? I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do any of this stuff by myself. And you know what? I need help. It's okay. We all need help. It's okay. Hey, those people I'm coaching, they didn't need help. Why they hire me for? It's such a powerful message. I want people to, to hear that, 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 that realization that everyone needs help. Uh, even the people, you know, so many people, you know, I say to them, Who, who's a leader who's inspired you? And they describe these people that were ahead of them as though they were on some pedestal and, you know, uh, flawless and, you know, in, in some kind of suit of armor. And when you talk to them, they're like, no, I'm waiting to be caught out. You know, and I'm the CEO of some organization, whatever. We all need help. I mean, people I coach, are, I mean, if you look at the first six pages of the book, I'm pretty proud of those six pages. That's who I coach. 
and I'm very proud of these people. These are very impressive people. You know, they're a pretty amazing group of people. Well, you know why else I'm proud of them? Because they all are humble enough to stand up and say, I need help publicly. By the way, remember the old days of coaching? The coach would say, well, I cannot tell you who my clients are. Why not? Why can't you tell people who your clients are? Are they ashamed to have a coach? I tell people who my clients are. They're all there writing a book. It's not a big secret. <laughs> if my listeners could do just one thing to start them on this journey to finding an earned life, what would you have them do? All right. I'm going to give them six questions to fill out about themselves every day on a one to 10 scale. And they all begin with the phrase, did I do my best to? Let me talk about why that's so important. I learned that also from my daughter. Um, we studied employee engagement, and every employee engagement question was a passive question. Do you have clear goals? Do you have meaningful work? Do you have a best friend at work? My daughter said, well, these are all interesting, but they get you focused on out there, not in here. She said, get people to answer questions. Begin with the phrase, did I do my best to? You can't blame somebody else. Take responsibility. So here are the six questions I recommend for every listener every day. If they do nothing but this, you're going to have a better life. Send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. I'll send you an article about this. The research is compelling. Question one, every day, did I do my best to set clear goals? So you wake up in the morning, did I set goals today? Question two, did I do my best to make progress toward achieving goals? Which is different than question one. Question three, did I do my best to be happy? Now, the question doesn't even say, were you happy? The question says, did you even try to be happy? Did you even try to be happy? Well, it may sound trivial. Let me give you an example of three medical doctors from my book, Triggers. One of them I mentioned earlier, Dr. Jim Kim, is a simultaneous MD and PhD with honors from Harvard in anthropology in five years. And to put this in context, a normal human being to get a PhD in anthropology from Harvard takes eight years. So he got one in five years, he got a medical degree at the same time. So when the brains were passed out, he wasn't, he wasn't at the back of the line. Uh, Dr. Raj Shaw, head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, age 37, reported Hillary Clinton. Now he's head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And Dr. John Noseworthy, CEO of the Mayo Clinic, you know, number one hospital, and all medical doctors like you. Not stupid people. All three ask the same question individually. How would you score one to 10 scale? 10 is high, one is low on the answer to this question. Did I do my best to be happy on an average day? All three had exactly the same answer. It never dawned on me to try to be happy. Wow. It never dawned on me to try to be happy. Now, they're all medical doctors. So, well, did it dawn on you? You're going to die? Did they cover that in medical school there, that death thing? Did that come up? And, oh, yeah, <laughs> they covered that topic, death. Now, I said, do you think this is a silly question? You know what they said? No. I just forgot to ask. Well, the average person in the world, did I do my best to be happy on a 1 to 10 scale? It's a 5.5. How would you feel in school if you got a 5.5 on a test? Terrible. That test is a thousand times more important than any test you took in school. And so did I do my best to be happy? Look, you know what? In life, we can't change the cards we've been handed. All we can do is how we play the card. Cards are the cards. Just how do I play the cards? 
Then the next one is, did I do my best to find meaning? Rather than say, did, I, did my work give me meaning? Did I give my work meaning? And rather than saying, did my life give me meaning? Did I give my life meaning? The next one is, did I do my best to build positive relationships? And then finally, did I do my best to be fully engaged or present? Every day. Fill it out. By the way, this is hard to do. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. Why? You look at these simple questions that seem like they would be obvious to a third grader. And, and uh, these are great people every weekend I was with. I can tell you, they're not talking all tens. The first question, uh, did I set clear goals? I got busy and you know, no. Did I make progress? Well, I, I was going to, but then, you know, no. Uh, was I happy? I got pissed off over some nonsense. Uh, uh, did I find meaning? No, I wasted my I wasted time doing crap. Uh, was I fully present? No. Bill Positive acted like an ass. So, and, you know, these are amazing people. They're humans. They're just humans. Every day they screw up just like everybody else, as do we all. And when people face into that, they start to see the journey ahead. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, this is not a theory. This work, it's hard to do. It's very, very hard to do because you don't have someone else to blame. See, it's a lot easier as we go through life to talk about their problems than it is to look in the mirror. When you ask the question, did I do my best to? And the answer is no. Who has to take responsibility? And I really like this because it's, it's so aligned with what I talk about a lot. I, I put this phrase in, in, in my book, which was, only you will change your life. And it's this piece about so many people are waiting for something else to happen or someone else to do something for them, to remove a roadblock, to give them a push. And in the end, it's all on you. And that's a painful realization. It is. It's much easier to blame them. That's fantastic. And I, I really appreciate you know, that you're going through in that way. I think it will really resonate with, with people. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. Today's master locksmith, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, brings to life how happiness and achievement don't have to be mutually exclusive. With the earned life, Marshall gives you the key to living a life unbound by regret and finding something greater than the isolated achievements of careerism. It's a powerful roadmap for developing a habit of earning that will last a lifetime. Marshall, thank you so much for your insight, your wisdom, and of course, your inspiration. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Unlock Moment. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very proud of you because to me, you are a person who has clearly chosen your own life. You've not been locked into some traditional pattern, which would have been very easy to have done. And you've kind of practiced a lot of stuff I think I'm talking about in that book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. 
the more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.